Hello, thank you for listening to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm Olina Hodges, and this is episode 75. I'm thrilled to have today's guests with me, Emily Pennick, Devin Bannon, and Lorenzo Roberts. These three are part of Seattle Immersive Theater's current production of Romeo and Juliet, running now through April 15th. We talk about process, director Emily's artistic choices, and how this more than 400-year-old text serves and supports contemporary issues of gender and sexual identity. Tickets are available through seattleimmersivetheater.org, and that's Seattle Immersive Theater with an R-E at the end of theater, dot org. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you to today's sponsor, Island Shakespeare Festival. ISF is Whidbey Island's professional regional repertory theater. Their 2016 summer season runs July 8th to September 11th with As You Like It, directed by artistic director Susanna Rose Woods, Julius Caesar, directed by award-winning Seattle director Corey McDaniel, who's also the producing artistic director of Theater 22, and finally Julie Beckman will direct her award-winning adaptation of Jane Eyre, which premiered at Book It Rep in 1999. For more information about Island Shakespeare Festival, visit their website at www.islandshakespearefest.org and check out their Facebook page. And we've also just launched the 2016 membership drive, so check that out as well. This is the Theatrical Mustang. This is Olina filling in for Katie today, and I am here with the Seattle Immersive Theater and some... People from their production of Romeo and Juliet that is running. How long do you guys run now? It's been extended. Through April 15th, I think. April 15th. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, so can we go around the table and you guys just tell me a little bit about how, what, what your journey was to bring you to this production? Should we introduce ourselves? Like from birth, yes, you can introduce yourself. From, from birth, yeah. <laughs> I'm Emily Pennick. I directed Romeo and Juliet, and I was born in California and raised in Joyzee. <laughs> New Got Jersey. It. Got it, yeah. <laughs> like, Joyzee, should I know that? Oh. I am Devin Bannon. I grew up here, uh, then uh, went to school on the East Coast, came back, uh, and I'm playing Friar Lawrence in Romeo and Juliet, and I think, briefly, my journey was I worked with Emily uh, in a production last year in Cafe Nordo, and that's oh, how I found out about this and then decided to come in and took it on. My name is Lorenzo Roberts. I'm playing Ben Volio. Uh, my journey is that I moved here about a year ago and uh, worked with Emily on Othello um, for Shakes. And uh, we just kind of have been hitting it off and chatting and wanted to work together. And so... Here I am. Great. Yeah. Cool. And my dog Mabel's on the floor, and she's very quiet. She's very beautiful. And her journey is that she's a rescue from Texas. She's, Adorable. She's named Mabel. That's just, that's the best thing. I am really curious about this approach. It's immersive, so can you talk a little bit about what that means and what the process has been? Absolutely. Um, so I was a huge fan of um, Seattle Immersive just as an audience member. And what Paul does, um, the set designer and artistic director of Seattle Immersive, that I found so exciting as a director, was that he creates worlds um, that you can explore as an audience member, um, and you can touch everything. 
So if there's a drawer, you can open it and you can look through it and you can mm. get to know the characters better by um, the objects that they touch and interact with. Yeah. So that was really exciting for me. And then in terms of Shakespeare being immersive, um, it was something I had never done before but was super excited about because um, back in the day when Billy Shakes was doing it, um, Shakespeare was pretty darn interactive and pretty darn immersive. Um, you know, modern in, in modern times and, you know, theater school, we talk about asides, you know, like mm -hmm. those magical moments where in a scene, you know, Iago will turn out and have an aside where he actually talks to you. But in Shakespeare's time, there were so many more moments in any given scene, the characters, the actors would be engaging with the audience directly a lot more than we think. And the audience would respond. Yes. We, we I think, forget that the audience had permission mm. in Elizabethan theater to participate and to, and to respond when they needed to. So in the context of the Seattle Immersive show, we have audience all around the actors, and you guys have full permission um, to play with and interact with mm. um, at any given moment. But I'll let you speak to that, because you were the guys actually living it. Yeah, I'd say the audience reacting, like you're talking about, is something that I noticed that was different from the beginning. I mean, most of the time, you have your stage, and the audience is out there, and that's great, and they applaud and laugh, but when have you been in a production before, or for me this is new, where, you know, I'm talking to Juliet, and one night recently someone said to Juliet, uh, it's going to be okay, while she's crying in the pews. Oh, that's such a lie. Um, and, and when I'm... <laughs> I, I know. I know, and they didn't know. And then another time I'm giving her this potion, telling her about my plan, and someone in the audience goes... I don't think that's a very good idea. <laughs> and, you know, it's just so honest. And they, But they feel permitted. Yeah. You know? That space and the way that it works wow. gives them that permission. And so it's so great because as an actor, you're like, oh, they're really here with us. They're really, they are part of this story too. Yeah. Yeah, and I've always wondered what it would be like to be in Shakespeare's time with the groundlings mm -hmm. um, watching right next to the stage drinking and... Yeah, throwing food at each other, <laughs> and I, I don't think we we get that close. But you know, there is some wine and there's some champagne, and and having that element in there is really fun for me because playing Benvolio, I'm the whole first half. I'm basically just trying to party, and um, trying to get Romeo to party. You know, and so having the audience when they are a little bit more juiced up is mm -hmm. really useful as an actor, you know, having that. Yeah, absolutely. And not just feeling like there is a wall, but we're all in this together, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Do you find that ever to be challenging, too? I feel like Romeo and Juliet requires, you know, a lot of really emotional work from actors, and right. it, has that ever been tricky with the audience participating in that and interrupting this Really intimate, desperate scene between the Friar and Juliet, for example? Or? I think there's a fine line between yeah. letting them have an experience yeah. and letting them overtake the show, right? So we, we are the ones that, that lead them, and we have to be very strong and, okay, you can move here, or you need to move out of this way, or, you know, this is the part. It's okay to laugh here, but, you know, this is a serious, you know, we kind of, take the charge on that, don't you think? Yeah, and we lay down some ground rules at right. the top. You know, we tell them, here are your masks, and if, you know, actors are going to move you, it's probably for your own safety. Yeah. And so they get a sense that, 
you know, you are in our house, but you are mm -hmm. welcome in our house, you know, to be here. Mm -hmm. But the audience is its own living being, just like any show. Sometimes you have to work harder. Sometimes they're talking. Sometimes they're more interested or less interested. And so you feel that more presently when they are two feet from your face. Mm -hmm. So I'd say that's the main difference is that it's not, it's still the audience. They still have their own reactions, but you get it instantly. It's right here. It's hard to ignore, you know, because it's very present. So for this production, what is, what's the world of Romeo and Juliet? It's here and now. Yeah. You know, uh, we don't name it like on the nose as Seattle, but it is um, a modern international city. You get the sense that um, there's a lot of trade going on, so we kind of, um, our actor imaginations were pulling from the fact that this is probably a port city, um, just like Seattle. <laughs> um, and Because, you know, sort of dramaturgically speaking, we had to figure out what the backstories were, where the Capulet family and the Montague families got their wealth. Because they're two households, both alike in dignity. Mm -hmm. So what we crafted and kind of served us in our modern telling is that the Capulet family was more old money, and the Montagues were more uh, new money, had made their, their money from shipping. Of course, none of this is obvious to the audience, but it was fun for us to... It's important, though, in telling the story to yeah. know what that history is. And, and, you know, start to lay in where that prejudice might come from yeah. and, and how they're different. How has that been for you guys, taking this into a totally modern realm? What do you find to be super relevant in the script? Well, Aside from for everything? me personally, the queerness is probably the most uh, apparent difference mm -hmm. um, in the way that this is contemporary and makes it relevant to my life. Mm -hmm. As a queer actor, you don't get that many opportunities to play a lot of parts, uh, but I would never have imagined the you know, option to play the friar. But because this, pr this production was specifically looking to tell that story, that world, I was given that opportunity but then when you have that opportunity, you look at the script with a new lens and you see things that are there that I, I've seen Romeo and Juliet a number of times. I've read it a number of times. But suddenly I'm hearing the friar's words, which the words haven't changed, take on a completely different meaning when I'm asking Romeo, art thou a man? And I'm talking to a trans man and I'm a queer friar. The scene becomes an entirely different scene but in this contemporary world, those relationships between those people do exist. So it's exciting for me because it, it, it feels like an entirely new play. You know what I mean? And it feels like something yeah. like, wow, these are stories, these are conversations I've seen or have been a part of. I had no idea they were also in Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. And it's only because of this take that I've gotten that. Yeah. That's really cool. How about for you? Uh, I love... I love Shakespeare, I, I love the classics, and I'm constantly trying to find new ways into it or find different ways to do it, so that's why I really loved uh, signing up for this. But I think an issue that many people of color, uh, specifically black artists have, black actors, um, that I've had is that when I read these plays in my mind's eye, I'm not necessarily seeing myself, mm -hmm. right? When I read Romeo and Juliet, I'm not necessarily seeing black people in the story, right? And so to have the ability to say Benvolio is actually me, right? To continue to remind myself, like, this is a black person on stage, right? And 
Lady Montague is a black woman, and she is my aunt, right? Like, that's really refreshing, and it's also, it does open up a whole, you know, what does it mean when the the prince comes out with a gun, and uh, he's unholstering it over me, right? And it's just a little subtle thing, right? It's just, maybe the audience doesn't notice it Mm -hmm. right then, but as the play unfolds, and all of these elements happen, the more truth that I have for Benvolio, uh, the, the, the bigger the power of the story hits me when someone dies or when a big event happens, you know? Yeah. It's been really refreshing. I think that's a really interesting point about guns mm. and sword fighting, obviously, in history was deadly and was a, I think, affected, probably affected. Um, past generations differently than it does us now, but guns, that's palpable. That's violence that we can understand and relate to. How has that uh, changed the story for you, do you think? Is... Yeah, well, when when I approached the violence um, in R&J, I, I, I love working with Ryan Higgins on violence. We've done it before together. And uh, I knew that this was not a sword-fighting world, but that it would be more of a knife fight and mm. armed, armed, um, hand-to-hand combat. So all the words like sword, we switch to blade, you know, things like mm. that. Uh, but what does it mean when um, our Tybalt, who is played by a fierce woman, uh, who has an extremely awesome background in training in martial arts, uh, just as her, her own self, and she brought that to, to Tybalt, what does it mean for a woman like that to challenge someone to a duel, like, in our modern world. And how scary would it be, like, if you were sitting at home watching your Netflix and a letter arrived saying, I'm going to knife fight you tomorrow in the square. Shit! You know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so the, the fight between, uh, between Tybalt and then... Um, she, Tybalt wants to fight Romeo, but then Mercutio steps in because he's got... There's kind of some fun sexual tension going on between the two of them, and they're both kind of um, obsessed with weapons and um, sort of martial arty violence. So to see the two of them have fun with their fight and have it be half, you know, um, foreplay, half Mm. fight. um, I I don't want to spoil how it ends, but... um, Between Tybalt and Mercutio? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess we all know know the story. But, uh, yeah, I guess we just got super specific and, and yeah. modern. Um, the only gun in the show is the one that the prince wears. Okay. The, the modern sort of update for the prince is that we made him a police officer. So he's the law, and he's Officer Prince, and it's actually like, you know, that's his name on his, on his, uh-huh. uh, on his badge. But, you know, violence hasn't gone away no. in society. Yeah. I think violence has changed, and the weapons have changed, but we, in trying to make this a contemporary take, bring to it what we know about the violence in our world. And for me as a queer person, telling a queer story, when I'm coaching Romeo, talking about the danger of going out there and being yourself mm-hmm. because of what can happen to you, because of the other people who don't accept you, violence can be very real, you know, on the streets of our own city for people who are queer. So there is that conversation and there is that fear that you have as a queer person so we can bring that to it that you know we're always in theater trying to find how do we make the danger feel real you know it's like that wasn't a challenge for me in this one 
because I know what that's like. Yeah. I know what that fear that the people can be coming around the corner and suddenly, are you alone? How close are you to your house? You know, it's like, those are the things that Romeo is going to have to think about in this town. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that I'm going to be talking to him about. So it's still real. It's just, yeah, the weaponry has changed, mm -hmm. but the stakes have not. How about for you? Uh, I think uh, the fights are so much fun, you know, just as an actor. Uh, and R I think, yeah, Ryan has done a really great job with that. And uh, for me, I spend a lot of time as Benvolio watching, right? And so I think what people who see it will see that it's really in your face and it's almost the highlight, you know, of that beat in the show, you know, watching them fight. Um, so it's, it's always, I always discover something new every mm -hmm. night watching them, yeah. Can we talk a little bit about, I know we don't have Romeo here, but can we talk a little bit more about how that changes or enhances some of the text that's already there and what your vision was for that, Emily? Totally, totally. Um, so in approaching Romeo and Juliet and having a, a modern production of it, it was important to me to not pre-cast any characters as a certain gender of actor. Mm -hmm. So the the call to the the Seattle theater community, you know, when we do our TPS mm -hmm. thing, um, was to come in with a two-minute Shakespearean monologue that connects to you as a person, regardless of the gender that it was written for. And I have never had so much fun at auditions. Jesus. I mean, uh, I mean, people were bringing in pieces that they would never be, you know, quote-unquote allowed to do mm -hmm. in an audition space. And so it was instantly like a passion project for everybody because they got to play these parts that they had a connection with. Um, I remember when C Carter came in, Carter Rodriguez, who plays the nurse, he read for the nurse, and he, just something in his heart connected with this this nurturing character, and we just spent a solid 45 minutes looking at the text and seeing, okay, in the text, how can it make sense for the nurse to be a man? And what, what we uh, arrived at, just by looking at what was already there and what Shakespeare wrote, this... Um, gay nanny slash personal assistant to a powerhouse Lady Capulet. Um, and so we had a similar investigation with Romeo. Um, and I had a lot of fun uh, auditioning different Romeos and Juliets off of each other, but Catherine Jett and uh, Mariana DeFazio had such chemistry. And, um, and so we looked at the text and we're like, okay, how does this make sense? Um, and there are a few lines in the show, I mean, Devin spoke to, to some, where what does it mean to, to say, you know, be a man to a trans man, and that, that's a very loaded moment. But there, um, there's so much, uh, there's so much to mind. There's one moment where Romeo kind of, he kind of hates himself, he's kind of chastising himself, and he's like, oh, your love has made me womanish. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and how do we hear Shakespeare's words in a new and fresh way um, with modern mouths saying them? Uh, I also feel that um, there are not a lot of trans characters on stage, and um, that's troublesome to me. And, or, I mean, and I'm a literary manager too, that's my day job, so I read a lot of plays and I've, I've been seeing a, a wave of plays that talk about trans issues, uh, but it's like 
plays that teach people what it means to be trans. And I'm more interested in having a character who is living their life um, and in, in other circumstances, it, it, yeah, just, who, yeah. And, and the point of the play is not that they're trans, but this is a trans person mm -hmm. experiencing, you know, a challenge or a triumph in their life. Mm -hmm. Right. And that was what was. Uh, I would just add on. You know, I think Mariana has really embraced it. She brought in a bunch of material in the rehearsal process, and there were things that I had no idea about. You know, and it's been really great. I think as a cast for us to discuss those issues and, and learn about what it means to live in that world. And I think one thing that I would love to see happen, you know, if we were to extend until next year, you know, with, you know, changing the cast, is to actually see a transgendered person play that role, you know. Because, you know, it's great. Mariana's doing a wonderful job. And, but I think uh, it'd, be, it'd be another layer to it, a, a very interesting layer to add that to mm -hmm. it as well. Yeah. yeah, and um, our dramaturg, Sarah Porklob, uh was an amazing uh, resource, and Mariana just really went out into the community and did her homework yeah. in beautiful ways. And as a play, Romeo and Juliet lends itself very well to that story. Mm. I agree. It's exciting to make that character of Romeo trans to see and remind people that that character can be trans, but it's also part of the queer experience to be told, you're not allowed to love that person. Mm. And that family has said no to this relationship. And there's nothing you can do about it, and please be quiet now. You know, and that's something that every queer person goes through. So I was just like, ah, oh, duh. Like, almost because it's so obvious how this story, you know, and it's one of, it's obviously one of the greatest classics of all time, mm -hmm. and it's been adapted into so many things, because that's a universal experience. It's also an experience every queer person has, so I was like, how perfect that Romeo is trans, because this is the kind of stuff he would have to deal with. It's amazing how, I mean, the few moments that you've mentioned in the text, how they support that story, I think is really... Amazing. Shakespeare so often can do that. It's, I mean, obviously, timeless stories that can be told and retold in every different way, but to be that relevant and to support this story that's so important to our time, I think is just really incredible. And bravo, taking that step to, to tell that story in this way of this classic piece that has a new face. I think that's really cool. Have there been any challenges that you've encountered in that, in the t either with the text or people receiving it? Or it's been a very welcomed production, actually. Yeah, really grateful for that. Um, you guys are there every night, though, so you can speak <laughs> to specifics. You know, I I'd, I'd say the thing that I have noticed is that if there's one thing, it's that maybe not everyone who sees it understands exactly who Romeo is supposed to be. But that is also the experience of a trans person in reality. So we are telling the story pretty genuinely uh -huh. because trans people have to deal with people looking at them and saying, I don't know what gender what that person is yeah. or what they're identifying as or who they'd like to be. So when people walk away, you know, like m my dear mother who knows trans people was like, I wasn't totally certain how Romeo was identifying, and there were times I thought, I was like, do you understand that that is a perfect reaction? Because yeah. that is what the trans person who would be Romeo, you know, 
experiences. That confusion is part of where we are at in society. That is very normal. That is very natural. So at first I was apprehensive. I was like, are we telling this the right way? Are we telling it fully? Are we telling it accurately? And I was like, that's accurate. That's accurate. So if people are coming away with a question mark there, I don't think we haven't done our job. I think we have done our job. But I don't think that that's the majority opinion. I think that most people are coming away with the understanding that we're trying to give them. But mm-hmm. if that's the challenge, I think that that's great. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I couldn't say any better. Yeah. How does this change Romeo's relationship to his bros? Yeah. Is so, that a different? I mean, uh, yeah, it's uh, interesting because, you know, Marianne is a woman, and uh, Ryan and I, as Benvolio and Mercutio, are playing it pretty hetero, I would mm-hmm. say. From, uh, Mercutio's. He doesn't have a lot of boundaries. Mercutio, <laughs> Mercutio, yeah, he's a little bit in the all over realm. You know, sure. you don't know uh-huh. what's going on, but you know you love him, right? Yeah. And yeah. Benvolio's <laughs> very much. I feel I've been playing him as a straight shooter. You know, like um, so it's great because we're taking that as. We're also teaching Romeo how to be a man, right? Which like, the text completely supports. Which, which like, yeah, that's exactly. what you guys are doing. Exactly. It's, I mean, so all the penis jokes. Are we're teaching fun. Romeo. We're teaching uh, Mariana. Uh-huh. Even you know, even yeah. backstage, it's like we're shooting the shit a little bit, and uh-huh. and uh, it's been great to get that camaraderie a little bit, you know, and and even in the guys' dressing room, we're like. We're starting before the show even happens, you uh-huh. know, and it's like, I almost want to drag Mariana in there, and be like, <laughs> you know, and it just feels like, yeah, everything, we had a conversation after, after a show one night, and, um, because I was feeling, I was judging the audience, right, I was trying to read the audience and give them the experience I wanted them to have, and, uh, basically, the conversation came to... Actor problems or character problems, always. The same thing you're mm-hmm. feeling, you can never deny. Don't separate the two, right? So whatever Lorenzo, the actor, is experiencing is exactly what Benvolio is experiencing, you know? And I think the more we can try and incorporate that, you know, continually through the run, the, the better it, the show is, mm-hmm. you know? So it's really, it's really great teaching, like trying to teach her and, and Romeo how to be a man, you know? Or what yeah. we think a man is. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Was yeah. that... How did you approach that? That's with... so fun. <laughs> well, um, you know, when we were looking at the text, um, we had to track the pronouns. And so it was it was very much who um, accepts Romeo's transition and who doesn't. Mm. And that's very character-revealing mm-hmm. as well. So certainly, you know, the Montague boys and um, Mercutio would, of course, call Romeo he. Um, and... And the, oh, that's so the, cool. The illuminating right. part of it was when Tybalt will not recognize that uh-huh. and calls Romeo girl to try to provoke the fight mm-hmm. because Romeo does not want to fight, so, so Tybalt's going after Romeo. So using the wrong pronouns there in a deeply offensive way um, was, was one of the ways we used that. Um, I thought it was kind of a, a really fun... Um, sort of textual moment when Romeo and Juliet meet they meet at a masquerade ball they're both wearing masks there are several people in drag um, you know both ways throughout the ball and so when Juliet meets Romeo she doesn't really 
No, she just knows there's chemistry there, but um, the, the gender identity is not clear. And the text, she doesn't say, hello, gentleman, or hello, gentle lady. She says, pilgrim. Mm-hmm. So when their flirting begins, she even chooses a word that leaves it open. And I thought that was kind of fun. And oh, yeah. the, the beauty of it, um, for me, it, is the next moment when we learn that Juliet's problem is not that Romeo is trans, but that Romeo's a Montague. So we still have this story, and that how innocent is that, and how like honest and loving is that, that the obstacle for her is not Romeo's gender identification. It's that my family doesn't want this for a variety of reasons, but the reason I can't be with you is because you're a Montague, yeah. you know? So you still have that. In the the family history, for you guys, and, and maybe this isn't, if it's not something that you've talked about, that's fine, but if it is, um, what do the Capulets know? I mean, obviously Tybalt knows, and... Like, how intertwined are their communities, the Capulets and the Montagues? Do they... Would Juliet have heard of Romeo and known that... Well, the fun thing Romeo's about... in this place. Yeah, the sort of helpful thing about Juliet's life is that she's very um, isolated. Yeah. Um, she yeah. does not know a lot about the world. So, I don't think she has a lot of friends. Her best friend is definitely her cousin, Tybalt. Mm-hmm. Um, so, her world is very small. Um, and I think, you know, this big ball that the Capulets throw every year is, uh, you know, this is kind of like a debutante ball. It's kind of her coming out party and where she gets to meet a lot more people. Romeo, just textually speaking, has uh, a reputation around town as being a, a gentle, well-governed youth. And the Lady Capulet knows that. But uh, I don't think there's a lot of, a lot of crossover. They're, they try to stay separate because of their ancient feud. Mm -hmm. What would you guys say to... I was under the impression that the Montagues don't really know much about Juliet, you know, I, uh, we, you know, it's not really, you don't really realize, but Benvolio and Mercutio essentially never see her, don't even know she exists. That's right. You know? Even up to the point where he died, where Mercutio dies, Mercutio dies, Benvolio disappears, they don't know why Romeo's so happy mm -hmm. at the, before this feud, before this brawl happens, yeah. you know. Um, so I think, yeah, we've been playing at that. We don't really know too much. We know that there, there's some reason that there's tension between our families, but who the players are, we know Lady Capulet and Lady Montague, right? They hate each other, and that's about it. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, and I think that they just, Romeo and Juliet have very different experiences leading up to this moment. Romeo starts by talking about his past relationship with Rosaline. Mm. So it's clear that Romeo has some experience. And, you know, I think you judge by that that the family has been somewhat cool with that or mm -hmm. they know somewhat. Whereas Juliet is like, you know, this princess in a castle who really is, is getting ready for an arranged marriage uh, to someone, you know, a member of the state. Right. She does not know, like you said, uh, a lot about the outside world, about love, about sex, I would say. So I think the families have set up their children very differently. Mm -hmm. And when they meet, you know, that's where the story begins. But I think, yeah, the family's effect is that they've raised their children very differently for their different reasons. And that's part of the whole culture clash. 
I've spent a lot of time uh, rethinking. It's been several years since I worked on this show, but I've been thinking about it a lot lately. I helped a teacher, a friend, do a class with, you know, ninth graders and talked a lot about Romeo and Juliet's relationship and how it changes over the course of the play. And I'm so interested in this take on it because I feel like there's so much room for, like, a different sort of growth for both of them. I mean, it sounds like Juliet is super sheltered, for sure, in the text. That, absolutely. Um, So do you think that this is kind of like... she? Does she know that this is even a thing that people would have a problem with, do you think? like? Oh, in terms of Romeo being a trans? Yeah. Well, the cool part about, uh, even though Juliet is sheltered, she was raised by a gay man, because the nurse sure. is a gay man. So, mm-hmm. um, so she does have some perspective about, um, uh, you know, straying from the heteronormative love mold. Mm-hmm. Um, and... and God, the love between Carter and, and Catherine as Nurse and Juliet is so sweet. And, and the wonderful thing about the nurse is that the nurse tells, it's in the text, tells all these dirty jokes. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so the idea that that would be part of their relationship is telling sex jokes, mm-hmm. you know, that like scandalize the people in the, yeah. in the Capulet house, but it's, but it's really fun. Yeah. So I think she would have, there would be a bit of permission and acceptance from, from growing up. Yeah, that way. I'd love to hear a little bit from you about um, kind of some of the parallels between uh, Juliet and the nurse and Romeo and the friar. I think you know in the text there's certainly some, oh, but yeah. in this process, have you what what has that? Well, meant I think to you? Uh, you draw an apt comparison because they are very analogous in some ways. Uh-huh. Uh, these two kids that are in different worlds have a main confidant that basically raises them and is the one they turn to for everything. But in that, you know, they're pretty different. Uh, as the friar, I'm the one who takes care of Romeo. And, the, you know, we, we do think of the Montagues as, you know, somewhat cool uh, with Romeo. But on the other hand, Romeo doesn't have someone at home to talk to because he's going to the friar. And I, I think, you know, the friar being queer, that informed this relationship as, you know, maybe his family's cool with it, but he doesn't have anyone queer to talk to. So he goes to the only person he knows who gets it, mm-hmm. and that becomes the person he's closest to. I think the friar is closer to him on this level than his best friends uh, that he spends yeah. most of the time with that love him and support him, and but they don't understand on this other personal level. So Romeo has the friar for that. And Juliet has the nurse for everything on her side as well. And, you know, the friar and the nurse, uh, the nurse being a gay man, you know, we have looked at this as a possible past relationship as well that maybe went separate directions and now are separated. And this is, you know, the two queer confidants become the like the advisors uh, to these two kids, yeah. I think that that's significant. I think that these are the only voices these kids can turn to for certain personal issues, and we all, you know, have those people. Um, and uh, I think that that's an important function that they serve for these kids. I think the lesson, or another lesson, is that everyone in the show has an idea about how and who you should love, right? 
for Romeo and Juliet. Lady Capulet wants Juliet to love Paris, right? Um, the friar is, you know, you have that scene where what happened to Rosaline, right? You loved Rosaline, now you love Juliet. We're saying, you know, you loved Rosaline, get over her, examine other beauties, right? Like, look at other beautiful women, which happens to be right, may I add. Like, that's good advice, because <laughs> it works, right? But, um, but, but at the end of the day, everyone's own opinions about what love is does, ends up not helping, right? They, mm -hmm. It leads to their death. If they could just be of their own devices, maybe they'd have some success. Maybe they would live longer. Yeah. You know? And we all have our own agendas, right. you know? The friar, though supportive of Romeo, you might argue, is doing this for a different reason. He's not even doing it for Romeo, but because this town Absolutely. has been in violence, yeah. and he's trying to stop a war. Mm -hmm. uh, the Capulets want to set up Juliet with Paris for their own social promotion, you know, because he is a smart, wise, safe, elevating choice. So a lot of these people are, yes, telling them who to love, how to love, but they're doing it for their own reasons. Right. And and if we could step back and say, who do you love? Oh, that's who you love? I support you with that. Right. We would be in a di very different world. Uh, but that's not the world of this play. You know, it's yeah. a play of people telling these kids all the reasons they shouldn't love the person. Or they should go after it for their own personal reasons. It becomes political. Yeah, across the board. I mean, yeah, I think that's a really important thing with the friar, this... Um, need to be the peacemaker and create this solution for the war that's happening. Yeah, and I had a queer friend who came to the show and said he really appreciated that we're doing it queer, so that's one layer, right? But that the queer advisor who's supporting Romeo is even doing it for another reason, you know, complicates that. So, you know, it's not even like the queer people are all good. You know, it's gray area morality across yeah. the board. Because I might be doing it for... I might be supporting this for my own selfish reasons. Yeah. Because it's going to be easier for me at the end of the day if this town quiets down because people are freaking out right now and they're dying and my job is tough. So, you know, it becomes more complicated, which is pretty realistic. Yeah. Has that been a challenge at all for you guys, do you think? Um, adding this layer of <coughs> queer and trans experience, have you found it to be a challenge to balance that, I guess, with the the needs of the text and the needs of the story. I will say I had a few friends who came and you know it's just I think the minute you have a queer friar, you know, just our modern context of what it means to be a, a priest, a Catholic priest and all the controversy around that, that does that's in our psyche, you know, a little bit. And so to see a queer friar you there are some implications that could be made, you know, mm. it, it just that cross your mind that may not necessarily need to, they don't necessarily add to the story if that's crossing the audience's mind, which they may be in the minority, but I think it, that is a thing, you know, which... Yeah, that's like, an interesting point, yeah. what the preconceived ideas of our culture right. currently are surrounding that. Yeah. And if right, you really. hold the church to be a sacred institution, right. you know, and you see this queeny actor playing up that queer humor that might come off as sacrilegious to you. Right. I find it really enlightening, uh, right. but also refreshing, that audiences come in, and I'm 
pushing the camp of this humor at the top of the show because I think there are jokes in there and I think that they should be used. If I'm going to bring my queer lens, if that's who I am, I would absolutely be bringing that humor. And sometimes the audience laughs in a way that I feel it's signaled back to me, we get the joke. And sometimes they don't. Hmm. And I'm like, right? Nope, this is, this is true. The audience is just as true as the story because mm -hmm. sometimes it's, it's not met with that same knowledge or that same acceptance. And I wonder, like, oh, am I crossing the line <laughs> with them? Or is it not funny for a different reason, you know? And so yeah. you get, the audience tells you some information back about yeah. what you're conveying as well. How about for you? I mean, I, I was just, you know, I, I took the approach as, as director um, to dig into the text and find all the answers from Shakespeare's words. So even though it is a very modern production and it does have queer and trans characters I really do think it's all there in the text mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. and that's um that's actually got me really excited to direct more Shakespeare I'm not, I'm not sure I could ever do a um a clear gender casting call again you know because ha yeah. being able to be so surprised and enlightened um just by not knowing who was going to walk through that door was really fun yeah, and it made the whole process pretty playful and collaborative. Uh -huh. It's also really refreshing to have so many uh, powerful women and vo and actually hear their voices. You know, here, here. I think Emily's done a uh, a wonderful service to Shakespeare by combining Capulets, because you know Lady Capulet in the original. Uncut oh, Lady text. and Lord are one. Yep. Yes. Oh. Yeah. Cool. Colleen Carey plays the, yeah. the schmooshed together Capulet parent. Got right. it. Yeah, and Lady Capulet is kind of, she spent, you know, she has that scene trying to get Juliet to marry Paris, and then she just is kind of, woe is me, for yeah. most of the play in the, in the uncut, you know. Uh -huh. and, and Lord Capulet's the one that's bringing down the hammer, you know. Uh -huh. But by combining them, you get a really interesting dynamic in this woman who obviously loves her daughter but also needs to to hold order and also feels a strong obligation to be the the head of the household and mm -hmm. she's very much like a businesswoman and but also there is a sense of she it reminds me a lot of uh Robin Wright in House of Cards mm -hmm. you know she's got that she's a little manipulative but you you still empathize with her right mm -hmm. um which is such a Shakespearean character. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But to have to have that be a woman, yeah. you know, to yeah, have that yeah. to have a Shakespearean role that's not just Lady M, but to have more, uh -huh. you know, that's that's complex, you yeah. know. And to yeah. see and, and to have all these women in our cast who are doing such great service to the yeah. work is really refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. How is that uh, domestic violence scene handled with one? That's what we called it. Was. Which one? The one where um, Capulet's yelling at, yeah. at uh, Juliet? Well, you have to come and see the show to find out. <laughs> um, no, I mean, just imagine being terrified by your mother, and she yells you into a corner, and how that, that just totally breaks you. I don't think she lays hands on her in that particular Do you um, combine lines from each... Because Lord and Lady Capulet both speak in that scene. Yes, it was, it was a really fun weave to do. And I, I cut the script when I was um, at the American Players Theater this summer uh, working on Othello, actually. So I was surrounded by awesome Shakespeare, and, uh, and I think I was feeling pretty bold. But um, <laughs> I, I did my initial cut, and 
and then definitely honed it once I cast Colleen and she had some wonderful um, suggestions of her own. I, and I like to work that way. I, I'm totally like, bring your own cuts to the board, people. Mm-hmm. So what what ended up happening, we definitely kept lines from both Lord Capulet and Lady Capulet. And what resulted was a conflicted parent. Mm-hmm. A conflicted single parent who needs to be nurturing, uh, but also needs to lay down the law. So there are moments where where Lady Capulet is just just totally yelling at Juliet. And then she self-corrects and she's like, but lay hand on heart. Thursday is near. Like, everything will be fine. I just really need you to do this. Uh Um, And so Colleen, I remember, said in in the audition, she was like, this is me. I get the single mom thing where you have to be both parents at once. And it is, you feel, you know, schizophrenic at times and bipolar because you, you totally have to be both the good cop and the bad cop when it's only you. That's a fascinating layer to add mm-hmm. to that role, I think. And so relevant and contemporary. Like, so many parents. Mm-hmm. That's so many parents. That do have to do both. That's really cool. I can't wait to see that. And it's different, you know, uh, when it comes out of a mother's yeah. mouth. You will take this arranged marriage. Yes, it is. Uh, and you will do this. Uh, you will be quiet or you will go out on the streets and die um, and not be my daughter anymore. It comes from this different place where you look then at Lady Capulet who's saying this and go, oh, because that's the life possibly you had, and you're doing that thing where you didn't have a choice, you know, you had an arranged marriage, that's the society you come from, and you're doing that thing where you are inflicting the same thing upon your daughter. It's different when it comes out of a father's mouth. I mean, Very. And, and, and so it becomes this, uh, yeah, she becomes a really complicated character. And and then, you know, the friar gets to punish her after Juliet dies um, by saying, you know, the most you sought was her promotion, and it stings. But it's different. It's a different it's a different story. Yeah. When Island Shakespeare did it, we had all, all the Capulets were women, and all the mm-hmm. Montagues were men. But we did have oh, a separate lady and lord Capulet, but Lord Capulet was then the grandmother figure. Okay. So. Mm. Oh, cool. I love that. I, I think it's fascinating to hear words that were <coughs> that are written for male characters through a female lens. It's really different. You were kind of talking about that a little bit yeah, earlier. Yeah, I just think uh, now is the time. I think the American theater in general is is asking for it. You know, that's mm-hmm. why a show like Hamilton is so successful. Is yeah. because people want to see. We relate to the universality of these stories, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we need to stick to exactly who those people are. If, if, the, if the story is so universal, then anyone should be able to play the role. Right? Absolutely. If you're getting the most talented person in the room, then it doesn't matter who, they sh- who we think they should be. You know? yes. And not just in the theater, our idea of how we label people in general is changing in America. You know? And I think it's all colliding, yeah. hopefully, for the better. You know? Oh, absolutely. I think that's completely right. Yeah. Yeah. Culturally, we're at such an amazing place and have reached this place where we're still still moving forward, but where we are now compared to even 10 years ago with, I think, open-mindedness and yeah. a, a growing awareness of well, you're seeing identities. T- you're seeing two extremes, right? You're yeah. seeing people well, totally embrace it and you're seeing people like totally to shun it, right? Yeah. So, but I think, I, I think we have true. both. I think in we have both in, in this story, you know? Yeah. And so it's... Everyone deserves a voice, mm-hmm. you know, and so, but I'm trying to hear as many versions of that as possible mm-hmm. and see which one is the most interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, whom in this, in this story of Romeo and Juliet is, is Tybalt the biggest shunner of? Yeah, t- Tybalt's these totally choices. a transphobe. Um, uh-huh. I think in Lady Capulet's not approving of Romeo, it's layered. I don't think it's the only reason, but I think it must be going through her mind why she would choose Paris over Romeo. Sure. Well, if it's all about social promotion and... The quote-unquote wisdom of that, you know, marriage. Yeah. I think a lot of people speak to why that relationship shouldn't work, and it is easy to see in the way we're telling it that they're speaking through coded language, you know, and even the people who don't come out and say it that's how it goes, you know, Why, in society. Romeo and Juliet's relationship? Yeah. yeah. They're, they're saying, this shouldn't happen, but no, I'm going to tell you for this reason it shouldn't happen, and it's like, okay, okay, but I wonder if another reason you're shunning this is because Romeo is a trans person, you know? Why is Paris a safer choice? You know? Why is Paris a safer choice? Mm-hmm. Juliet doesn't love Paris. Yeah. Could it be that... Romeo's transness has, you know, an element there? I think absolutely. How are you dealing with age and um, that social context of... I mean, I'm just thrilled that we have such an age range in this cast. Uh Um, I mean, our youngest is 19? I think so, yeah. Yeah, Tanai's 19, and I don't know how old the oldest person in the cast is, but um, certainly, uh, you know, older parent range. Having having that breadth of experience in the rehearsal room was such a joy. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a wonderful line that Mercutio has uh, in a scene where he's being a little uh, a little jerk to the the nurse and Peter, who is uh, played by a middle aged woman. So uh, he gets to throw old ancient lady. Yeah. At um, at Heidi Wolf as he leaves the stage. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, oh, that's horrible. <clears throat> you know, um, so, and she was like, she asked for it. She was like, can that ancient lady please be thrown at me so I can, <laughs> so I can be horrified? <laughs> but um, how, how has the, the age range affected you guys? As um, cast? Age is written into the friar's part. Mm. Um, and that's one of the reasons that, you know, I haven't probably considered that apart for me and others haven't considered that apart for me in the past either because every time you see Romeo and Juliet or most times it's you know an older gentleman and it's you know whether he's the master architect or the befuddled doesn't know what he's doing he's usually an older guy mm-hmm. um, and, and one of those two yeah, options and one of those two yeah. options and Romeo says if you know thou were as young as I um, you would understand um and we talked about that, and I was like, well, I'm not that age, um, but I am of age to be a priest, and I have history with Romeo, and maybe I have a few years on Romeo, uh, and that changes the meaning of that sentence. But I think my youth, it brings to the part something different. Um, mm-hmm. Someone came to the show and said how they saw how how fitting it was that the friar was a young person because it seemed like a young person's mistake to make. Mm. To think that this plan would be so perfect. Oh, yeah. And, oh, that is silly. And that it's like, oh, he... What did she say? She said, he got in so way over his head. Yeah, absolutely. He, he, he may have had good intentions, and he may be bright, and he may think his plan is perfect, 
But then it's so obvious that this situation has gotten so much bigger than he could have calculated that all these things are going wrong that it's like, oh my God, what a young person's mistake. And I was like, I love that, you know? Um, Yeah. Our wonderful verse and text coach, Matt Schwader, called uh, the friar um, something like an idealistic youth pastor. Yeah, and I love that. Because I do have, you know, I have a fondness for Romeo. I have an affection for Romeo. I'm trying to do my job really well for this entire town, and I think I am doing it. And I, I think I can take on this problem, and I think I can solve it. And it's so much bigger than me. Yeah. It's so much bigger than me. Yeah. That's and, really cool insight. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that is also, as a young person, speaking to your maybe only five or six years older mentor. Mm-hmm. That seems like a really long time when you're 17. That's like, you haven't been a teenager ever. Right. You know, even though, like, it wasn't that long ago. Right, no, absolutely. But. And I'm like, do this and calm down and be quiet. And, you know, Romeo is acting like a teenager uh-huh. in some ways, you know, in these temper tantrums. So, yeah, of course, Romeo throws that age card at me and I'm like, really, Romeo? You know? <laughs> yeah. But it works. It yeah. totally works. Yeah. Uh, age doesn't really play a part I, I'm as Benvolio I'm younger than uh, Romeo and Mercutio actually and but I'm I feel like I'm the most mature because I'm constantly totally. reining them back in you know mm-hmm. um, reminding them to act like adults mm-hmm. you know <laughs> um, and I think only when I'm faced with the death of people I love that may, you know I age probably another 30 years, you know, as far, so as far as my actual physical age, it doesn't play a part, mm-hmm. but the, the spiritual, mental, yeah. emotional maturity is very much a part of my yeah. character, yeah. That journey for all those young people in, in Romeo and Juliet, I think is so, makes it such an incredible story to tell. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Juliet changes, I mean, at the beginning of the play, she's a kid she's a little kid and then by the end she's a woman she's severed all ties with everyone that was her support system to be to make her own choices and take her own path yeah Yeah. for Benvolio too yeah thanks guys (laughs) thank you so much yeah Uh, do you have any final thoughts about um what what you'd like people to take away from I have so, one. Yeah. I, I think what we have done merely in the casting, and, you know, there is no merely to it, um, but offering the option to look at a classic work and say, I'm going to let anyone of any gender um, come at this role and bring it, um, and just offering the option to look at these roles again with that lens, with the option for a queer voice, uh, was so exciting for me and is so rare. I would love that to not be rare. I would love people to walk away from this and say, how great, maybe we can take this play. Maybe we can take, you know, this Arthur Miller. Maybe we can take this new play. And possibly that character doesn't have to be male. Possibly that character doesn't have to be white. Possibly that character doesn't have to be straight. I think that there is a lot more room in the theater for that. I hope people take that away. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you so much, you guys. Uh, for tickets, seattleimmersivetheater.org. Seattleimmersive.org. Seattleimmersive.org. 
And again, Romeo and Juliet runs through April 15th. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.